Welcome back to the Vodka Lemonade and Crime podcast. George and I are going to be jumping back into part two of the Dennis Nielsen case and we're just getting started folks. As always you can find the sources in the description below or over on our Instagram at Vodka Lemonade and Crime. So without further ado if you can serve the time then get ready for some Vodka Lemonade and Crime. Hey George. Hi there. What are we drinking? Today we're drinking tea. Oh no. <laughs> it's not a cocktail. No, but we already said what the cocktail was for this episode last time. So I'm calling this one a cosy cast because I'm in my dressing gown and I'm drinking tea. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of doing a podcast is you don't have to look good for filming or anything. But some podcasts are filmed, so. Not this one yet. Ooh. So, Dennis Nielsen, I'll provide you with a quick recap from oh, last time. I'm looking forward to this, hearing about this horrible crime. Go on. So, before we get into it, what did you think of part one of the Dennis Nielsen case? He's not a very nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I found it interesting that he said he wants to get it all off his chest, because normally these people are, well, I don't know, I'm not profiling them, but sometimes these individuals just seem to not want to talk yeah so you're you're saying the fact that he came forward with all the information was interesting we didn't necessarily come forward did he because well, he was, he was cornered. <laughs> but he was cornered wasn't he with the um yeah because he blocked the sewage system and then they kind of had him bound however, to rights, didn't they? no but however he wasn't really bound to rights because bound to rights sorry yeah um because he didn't have to give the police any details about numbers of victims yeah, and wait for part two on all the other information mm. that he supplies which ultimately I believe would have meant that a lot of victims would have gone unfound and he might might have still you know had a much lesser sentence if not any sentence at all mm. let's get into the recap so, very quickly, just to go over where we left off. Dennis Nielsen has been arrested on suspicion of murder following the discovery of remains in his plumage system and in the wardrobe of his flat in Cranley Gardens in London. En route to the police station, when asked about how many bodies, he replied, 15 or 16 since 1978 three at Cranley Gardens and about 13 at my previous address at 195 Melrose Avenue in Crinklewood. So that's where we left off. Whilst in police custody, Dennis was extremely forthcoming about the murders and he answers all of the police's questioning to the best of his ability. In fact, given a lot more details than asked of him and he made a full confession he even dismissed his um, representative, his solicitor, that was provided to him because he felt like it was getting in the way of what he wanted to answer. The details of Dennis's gruesome past astounded police investigators. However, to keep Dennis for more than 48 hours, they needed to identify one of his victims and charge him with the murder of that victim. Currently, they just have remains they don't have any identification of who these people are 
therefore they can't charge him. At first, Dennis claimed that he really struggled to remember any of the full names of his victims because he just invited them back for a drink and it wasn't people that he knew for long periods of time. It was just people he met on nights out. Dennis' victims were all young homosexual males who he had met whilst out drinking. They were usually troubled and often lonely individuals. For example, many of them were drug addicts or those who had experienced rejection in some way. Unemployment during the 1980s was at an all-time high and many people who had travelled to London searching for a better future, they often ended up homeless and kind of wandering without direction. Dennis would befriend these types of individuals. Like we said in the previous episode, he did have good interpersonal skills and was very friendly from the off and would invite them back to his home offering them either drugs, alcohol or simply food and shelter in some cases just depending on the conversations that he had and what he found out about them. On initial formal questioning when asked about how the body came to be in the cupboard in his flat he said to the police officers that have you searched more of the flat because you'll find more human remains in the tea chest in my bedroom and also in the turned up drawer in my bathroom. He, like I said, sometimes providing more information than asked of him during formal questioning. He then told officers that in his previous address at 195 Malrose Avenue, officers would find the remains of 12 or 13 more people dating back to 1978. Dennis was questioned about his method of killing, to which he answered strangulation after they had passed out or fallen asleep. His most recent murder took place three weeks before his questioning and the other two victims from Cranley Gardens last year, revealing that Dennis kept the corpses for nearly a year. If the victim was unconscious but not dead, he would drown them in the sink, bathtub or bucket of water after strangulation. Afterward, he would bathe the corpse shave them, apply makeup, clothe them, prop them on the bed or on his armchair. He would destroy all of their personal belongings. During the subsequent period of cohabitation, he would embrace and talk to them. He would often masturbate over them, performing non-penetrative sexual acts on the body. He knew that over time the bodies would start to decompose and there would be a smell problem, so Dennis would need to perform dissection to dispose of the bodies, which he claimed that he absolutely hated. He got blind drunk over the weekends so he could face the task in hand, line the floor with plastic bin liners and would begin dissection on the kitchen floor. Dennis explained that in his previous address at Malrose Avenue it was much easier to dispose of the bodies because he lived on a ground floor flat so he could hide the bodies under his floorboards. And because he had access to a garden, he could burn the victim's remains outside. He threw a tyre on top of the fire to mask the smell. Hold on. If he's, um, he's worried about the smell of these bodies... Yeah. So he takes them apart. Mm-hmm. How does that change anything about the smell? Well, that's when he would decide, oh, it's time to dissect and get rid of the bodies. Right, but he's dissecting into smaller parts and then... So to, to, to put them somewhere else. Dispose, so stuff, dispose of them. Yeah, so yeah. whether that be 
as I will come into it in a moment, he would tie them up in plastic bags and put them underneath his floorboards or shove them in wardrobes and then from after that burn them outside in right. the garden. He didn't, The he claimed that dissecting the bodies is not, he didn't get any joy out of that whatsoever. You know, he wanted to keep the bodies in their full yeah, form. No, I, I just think it's it's interesting that he's, he obviously highlighted that distinction to the police or, or whoever's interviewing being like, yeah. you know, I did this, I did X, Y, Z up to this point, but oh, I didn't enjoy the dissecting. No, no, that's not me. You know, as if that, that suggests that's where he drew the line morally, you know? Yeah, and there's a lot of that throughout his case. Drawing, uh, another one that he drew was I, he never sexually penetrated any of the bodies. That wasn't what he did. He just looked after them. Hmm. So in his mind... Some, look, I mean, looked after them in quotation marks, of yeah. course. So in his mind, he's not breaking any morals because he's got obviously got a different set of moral codes. But he... So after the flames had died down from when he was burning the bodies, he would rake and smash any of the bones that he could find into smaller pieces. When he was in Muswell Hill on the, f- the third floor flat where he was discovered, he dismembered the still fresh bodies... Um, in the bathtub or or in the kitchen and he boiled their heads, hands and feet and then flushed the flesh and internal organs on smaller bones down the toilet, hence how he got discovered. Mm. He kept the rest of the bones in bags until he took them out in the trash. Now, what I found interesting was he... So it was said that in Malrose Avenue he moved out of there because they were doing a refurbishment the landlord wanted to do a refurbishment so he moved into a new flat but he decided to pick a top floor flat with no access to a garden or anything like that and now his claim is that he never intended to kill anyone he just would find himself doing it nothing was premeditated and you know there wasn't there wasn't any plans to kill anyone he just found himself doing it Mm. um so I found it interesting that he went and decided to move into a flat with no access to a garden and that, and also he couldn't bury them under the floorboards of that flat because it was a top floor flat. Yeah. And so, he, but he still decided to move there, which corroborates his claim that things were not premeditated and he didn't plan to be this way. Hmm. So um, it's happening at some kind of subconscious level. Yes. He's not consciously choosing to be like this. Which comes to significance later on in the trial. On January 26, 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, a man named Stephen, who he strangled whilst in an alcohol and drug-induced stupor. After killing him, Nielsen noticed that Stephen's wrists had been bandaged. So he decided to remove them and he discovered that Stephen had tried to kill himself only a few days prior to being in his company. Nielsen then bathed him after he had died, applied talcum powder to him and arranged mirrors around the bed before undressing him and lying him naked on his bed. After several hours, Dennis kissed the body, wished it goodnight and fell asleep alongside it. The body was subsequently dismembered and the parts placed in different bags with Stephen's own bandages used to seal the bags. Police worked hard to find Stephen's last name. Dennis eventually remembered that his last name was Sinclair. Stephen Sinclair. However, they needed to be sure that the remains in Dennis's flat matched a Stephen Sinclair. The pathologist explained 
that the dissection was conducted with a very high level of skill and that the head of the most recent victim, being Stephen, had been boiled beyond recognition. It was possible to take a fingerprint sample from his remains. These matched the Stephen Sinclair that the police had on file. They were now able to charge Dennis for his murder. This is just depressing me. I don't know. I don't know. It just makes me feel really sad. I find it incomprehensible that somebody would do something like this. I do as well, but... But these people exist. And therefore, if these people exist, and in order to prevent them, you need to understand why and what they do. Hmm. Right? Yeah, of course. After Dennis was charged, police took him to Melrose Avenue, his previous address, to identify the burn site of his victims. Dennis identified the burn site and was taken to Hearn Hill Prison, where he would stay whilst he was on remand. Whilst he was there, he was visited by an author named Brian Masters, who collaborated with Dennis to create the award-winning biography Killing for Company. The police went on the search to identify as many of Dennis's victims as possible in order to charge him with multiple murders. They made appeals to the public for any people to come forward who had encountered Dennis and for anyone who had missing loved ones in the area. A man came forward named Douglas Stewart to say that he had met Dennis in the Golden Lion pub in Soho and that Dennis invited him back to his place in Malrose Avenue after last orders. Whilst at his flat, Douglas passed out. When he came to, he realised that Dennis had used his tie to restrain his ankles and was using his other tie to strangle him. Douglas put two ties on. Sorry, no, Douglas's tie was used around his ankles and Dennis's tie was used to strangle him. Right, okay. Okay. Douglas fought him off and escaped from the premises. Douglas later testified against him in court. The police were under a lot of pressure from Scotland Yard regarding how much the investigation was costing. They were also under a lot of pressure from the public to make sure that they identified every single victim of Dennis's, despite it happening over such a long period of time, and the way that Dennis tried to dispose of the bodies in his previous address made it increasingly hard. Police visited Dennis on remand a number of times to help them identify further victims. Dennis identified a man named Martin Duffy, he was just 16 years old. He strangled Martin in his sleep and then drowned him in his kitchen sink. Afterwards, Dennis took Duffy's body to the bathroom and then bathed him. When the body became bloated, Dennis hid it under his floorboards and later burned his remains in the back garden. Duffy was Dennis's third victim. He was identified by the remains in Melrose Avenue. I don't know the exact specifics on how they identified him, but he was identified. As the police were leaving the prison, Dennis also gave them another name, a Mr. Kenneth Ockenden, a Canadian student. Dennis offered to show him a number of London landmarks. After giving him a tour, Dennis invited him over to his apartment. He then strangled him to death whilst he was listening to music. The following morning, Dennis staged Ockenden's body in a number of suggestive positions and photographed him. Watched television with his corpse as well. Afterwards, he wrapped him in plastic bags and hid him under the floorboards. During the next two weeks, Nielsen dug up and reburied Ockerton's body four separate times. Every time after he dug up the body, before he reburied it, 
he would place the body on his armchair, where it remained while Dennis drank and watched TV. Sounds very lonely. Right? Mm. Yeah. And that is why the book that Brian wrote is called Killing for Company. Mm. So... Following Kenneth Ockerden's disappearance, there was a number of news reports. It was a very famous disappearance that got a lot of press. And there was a number of appeals made for his whereabouts. Police, in fact, investigated his disappearance for three years, but found nothing to lead them to Dennis or that he'd even been murdered. So this was really big when it came out that Dennis claimed that he murdered him and many in the police were questioning Dennis's motives for saying this. Oh, you just you just happened to remember Kenneth Ockerden's name now? Or were you doing it just to stay relevant in the papers? Mm. So they needed to verify that he had in fact killed Kenneth Ockerden. In total, Nielsen's identified victims were Stephen Dean Holmes, age 14, Kenneth Ockerden, age 23 yeah 14 was his first victim william sutherland age 26 martin duffy age 16 john howlett age 23 stephen sinclair age 20 graham allen age 27 and malcolm barlow age 23 the police charged dennis with six murders and brought the investigation to a close this was contested by members of the force and obviously the public as well, but it was argued that six murders was enough to make sure that he ended up with life in prison and that they had spent too much money on the investigation already. There were at least nine families that never received closure or justice for the murders of the remaining victims. I read out eight names there only six he was charged with, mm -hmm. even though two had definitely been identified. They just didn't want to open the case even more. Was he charged with anything else on top of murder? We'll wait till the end. I was going to say, if he's done that to a 14-year-old, then that's a whole other so, sentence. In. The trial. During the trial, Dennis Nielsen pleaded not guilty which shocked a lot of people, given how forthcoming he was with his confessions. The defence argued that Dennis never lured the victims back to his home with the intention of murder and just sought their company. And anyone who kept corpses of their victims was not of sane mind, mm. in the hopes that Dennis would only be charged with manslaughter, not murder. Because he's insane? Yes. And they were, not, they were not premeditated. Dennis argued that he never once planned to kill, so it was down to the prosecution to demonstrate that the murders were planned and premeditated. The prosecution argued that Dennis was an intelligent man and was calculated to conceal his crimes for years. A psychologist that worked with Dennis for four hours claimed that Dennis was a very intelligent man and was able to conceal his real identity in order to preserve appearances. However, the defence questioned the psychiatrist on the stand and argued that he was ordered to be put on suicide watch, which demonstrated that someone who is put on suicide watch is not mentally stable. Mm -hmm. 
Douglas Stewart, the man who made an escape from Dennis's apartment in Malrose Avenue, testified against him. He told the court that Dennis offered him vodka to drink. The defence claimed that, in fact, Dennis does not drink vodka, only rum, bringing into question the legitimacy of his testimony. The prosecution called Carl Stotter to the stand, who met Dennis in April 1982 when he was just 21 years of age in the Black Cat pub in Camden. Mm-hmm. Carl was a drag artist and had a fractious relationship with his family. While sleeping, Dennis attempted to strangle Carl using a zip from his sleeping bag. Carl woke up and then lost consciousness again. He awoke one more time to find that he was being held underwater by Dennis. Dennis had a change of heart, it seems, as he reportedly stopped trying to drown Carl, who had lost consciousness again. He gave him mouth to mouth, wrapped him in sheets and placed him in front of a heater, then finally let him leave. The jury found Dennis guilty on six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder at the Old Bailey. He was sentenced to life in prison on the 4th of November 1983 with a recommendation that he served a minimum of 25 years. This recommendation was later changed to whole life in December 1994. Developed a long-standing relationship with Brian Masters, the author who wrote his biography Killing for Company. Mm During his visits, Brian Masters' visits to Dennis, Dennis provided him a notebook and it was entitled The Monochrome Man Sad Sketches, 195 Malrose Avenue, D.A. Nielsen. This is where he sketched the bodies of his victims and wrote about his murders. He also described the dismembering process. These images can be found in the Killing for Company book by Brian Masters, but I won't be putting them over on my Instagram because I don't want them to have a home on my Instagram. Like I said, Brian Masters developed a relationship with Dennis and even after the publication of his book, decided to continue visiting him for the next 10 years. Why he decided to do that, I'm not sure. Dennis Nielsen died on the 12th of May, 2018 at York Hospital following a pulmonary embolism, which occurred following surgery to repair an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Dennis Nielsen's dog, eight-year-old Bleep, which we mentioned in the first episode, was his only friend. She witnessed all of Dennis's heinous crimes and she was put to sleep three weeks after his arrest on the 9th of February, 1983. Why was she put to sleep? Um, It was said that she had an infection, so was put to sleep. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But she was put to sleep. And that concludes the end of the Dennis Nielsen case. God. So how many people did he kill? We we do think it's 16. So this is contested, never confirmed. So... Sounds like he doesn't even know. and, And that's true. And he later after court said to Brian that he wasn't sure and he'd only said um, 15 or 16 murders to stay consistent but he said oh it might have been 12 or 13 he was never sure Hmm. 
The pathologist that identified the remains said it was anywhere between 13 and 20 people. Mm. Yeah. And eight were identified, but only six he was charged with. How was it, how old was he when he died? I think he was like 72. Okay. Yeah. So he spent most of his life in prison. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, so like, like I was saying, I, I believe that the police wouldn't have got anywhere near as close as they did had he not been forthcoming. They wouldn't have known where the remains were in Malrose Avenue. They wouldn't have known the name of Stephen Sinclair, the first person that was identified. Mm-hmm. I don't know, they might have matched the fingerprints and then found them on record, but I'm not sure what technology they had back in the day to like sift through all of the fingerprints, whether they had something like that, because it was in the 1980s. Mm. Um, So a large number of the victims that were identified were identified by Dennis himself, not the police. Was there any reopening of the case at any later stage once DNA improved? There Uh, There seems to be quite a big thing in America. Not, not from what I um, read and watched. No, so it was just that he was sentenced to life in prison. Mm-hmm. He said that the reason why he was forthcoming was because he was hoping that the the police or psychiatrist psychiatrist could tell him why he was doing what he was doing because he didn't know. And also, <clears throat> he said that he was glad that he was being imprisoned. He would have done it again. Mm -hmm. And there would be hundreds of bodies after him had he not been found out. Mm. So that concludes the case of Dennis Nielsen. Would you recommend people watch the Des series? I really enjoyed the Des series. Um, It matched a lot of the sources that I had read. Um, I also would recommend the Brian Masters book. The the Des series has some really interesting relationships in there. One being now watching it after reading and researching the case is the Brian Masters and Des relationship. Okay, and that brings us to the end of the Dennis Nielsen case. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out a lot. You can also find our episode updates over on Instagram and our episode previews over on TikTok at Vodka Lemonade and Crime. That's all from me for now. So if you can serve the time, then we will see you in the next one of Vodka Lemonade and Crime. Bye.